with our tongue. We bless the Lord and Father, and with it we curse those who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this ought not to be so. Please pray with me. Dear God in heaven, we ask you to join us here in this place this morning, and we trust that you have kept your promise and are here with us. May my words be your words, and all of our thoughts your thoughts. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. So goes one of the most pervasive and oft-repeated lies that has ever been told in the history of the world. Generations of parents telling generations of children that sticks and stones may break your bones, but words will never hurt you. Now, I understand why we were told this lie. Our parents and our parents' parents before them wanted us to see that we were stronger than we thought we were and that we could survive whatever terrible thing someone had said to us at school that day. And we did survive. But even so, that little couplet just isn't true. Those words said at school hurt. As a good friend used to say, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will mess up my life forever. (laughs) I suppose I should be clear at this point that I'm not suggesting that the weird 21st century attempt to compare conflate speech and violence, as in, you and I disagree with each other about something, therefore you have inflicted violence against me. I'm not suggesting that that is helpful or true. I don't think it's either. But I do think that words can hurt emotionally and do damage relationally. And that the tongue, because of the words it produces and the heart that it reveals, is a very powerful thing. That as Christians, we are called to control and submit to the authority of God. And make no mistake, God cares about your tongue. Here's Paul in Ephesians 4. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Or Leviticus 19 You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. You shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. And of course, in the Ten Commandments, we are enjoined not to bear false witness, to be truthful. We are to use our tongues to glorify God and to love each other. And instead, we often use the power of our tongues to slander, to tear down, to sin. And James, in the third chapter of this biblical letter, acknowledges not only the power of the tongue, but also the frequency with which we let ours get out of control. The tongue, he says, is small but potent. He compares it to a bit that gets put in the mouth of a horse, a tiny little piece of metal that is able to steer a large and powerful animal. He also compares the tongue to the rudder on a ship, 
a relatively small piece of wood compared to the total size that completely controls the direction in which the ship is heading. And finally, he compares it, your tongue, to a tiny spark that can set a whole forest ablaze. And he's right. You know he's right. Your tongue has destroyed something in your life. Something you said ruined something you loved. A relationship, a job, a ministry, even a life. You are tragically acquainted with the power of your tongue, aren't you? With this tiny little thing, we can ruin lives, our lives or the lives of others, in an instant. After acknowledging this power of the tongue, James laments the fact that Christians seem to be just as cavalier with their tongues as non-Christians. No one, he says, can tame the tongue. A restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless the Lord and Father, and with it we curse those who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and brackish water? Can a fig tree, my brothers and sisters, yield olives or a grapevine figs? No more can salt water yield fresh. James is incredulous. He's saying that in the same way that a pure spring cannot bring forth briny water, and a fig tree cannot bear olives, and a salty sea cannot provide fresh water, a Christian should not be able to, with the same mouth that blesses God, curse any of God's creatures. It shouldn't be possible. And yet, here we are. My brothers and sisters, he exclaims. And then he says what we all know to be true. This ought not to be so. This ought not to be so. Now listen, it's been a long time since I've used an illustration from Fraser, so I'm due. And this observation of James is just a perfect reminder of an absolutely classic final season episode of that show in which Daphne and Niles are together and Daphne's pregnant. And they meet their friend Roz in a coffee shop. And Daphne, who has never had a child, mentions that they're considering a medication-free delivery. And Roz, who has had a child, is astounded. Aren't you worried about how much it's going to hurt? Roz asks. To which Daphne replies that a natural childbirth needn't be painful. It needn't be, Roz responds, but it be. Now, James here in our text is playing Daphne. This ought not to be so. And we are Roz. It ought not to be so, but it is so. Indeed, this ought not to be so is the refrain of our lives. We are all intimately acquainted with this ought not to be so. Your children don't obey you. This ought not to be so. Your parents, as the song goes, just don't understand. 
This ought not to be so. Your spouse is drifting away from you. This ought not to be so. Your brother's success is making you look and feel like a failure. This ought not to be so. Your own success has not brought you the peace and happiness that you hoped it would. This ought not to be so. This refrain literally begins the moment we are born. Literally right out of the womb with our tortured cries, I'm hungry, it's bright, and I'm afraid. These first screams are an infant's way of saying, this ought not to be so. And the refrain continues until we draw our final breaths. That pain and suffering definitely, most assuredly, ought not to be so. And these, of course, are just the worldly versions of our this ought not to be so problems. Put an almighty holy and law-giving God into the mix, and our problems grow exponentially. We do not love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. This ought not to be so. We do not love our neighbors as ourselves. This ought not to be so. We, we servants of God, we lie, we covet, we lust, Our tongues set great forest fires in the relationships of our lives. We are not who God calls us to be. My brothers and sisters, this ought not to be so. And yet, it is so. So now what? Well, I think the first temptation is to just kick God off of his throne and install ourselves there in his place. This is something that we think might give us some peace. We become our own God and make and remake the laws as we see fit, always seeking to justify ourselves in our own eyes. The book of Judges captures this way of life with its repeated refrain, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. When Christ is not the king, you are, but you are are not trustworthy. You cannot be a source of joy or hope. Doing what is right in your own eyes is bondage, slavery. So if you feel that the this ought not to be so of your life is overcoming you and you're tempted to throw your hands up and give up, read the book of Judges. That is no way to live. There is no life down that path. Indeed, installing yourself on the throne of your life will lead inevitably and inexorably to failed attempts at self-justification, exhaustion, despair, and death. If that's too dark for you, There is another common strategy for dealing with the difference between the way things are and the way things ought to be. Another way to deal with all of the this ought not to be so of your life. Many will affirm that this all does mean something, that there is a God on the throne and that this ought not to be so. And so claim that it must be up to us to roll up our sleeves and get to work. 
If something isn't the way it ought to be, make it so. Make it the way it ought to be. Do better. Try harder. Be like Phil Collins in his song, Land of Confusion, who promised that his generation was going to get it right. And that's fine. It's even true. We ought to roll up our sleeves. We ought to engage the world and get to work. We ought to get it right. This is indeed part of what James is calling us to. We should tame our tongues. We should strive to be the people God has called us to be, obedient to his word. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. You shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. This law is holy, good, and true. It is a reflection of the character of Almighty God. But as true as it is, it's not good news. It's not actually, at the end of the day, anything you wouldn't hear at your local school board meeting or World Economic Forum gathering, or from celebrities in their Oscar acceptance speeches, any synagogue or mosque, or any of the million other groups of people coming together to make the world a better place. Everyone is always rolling up their sleeves. And yet apparently, rolling up our sleeves only has a limited utility. Phil Collins is an old man now. He wrote Land of Confusion in 1986. His generation was three generations ago. And you know what? They didn't get it right. It's 2021 now. There are literally millions of organizations and people working to make the world a better place. And look around. Hate, terrorism, starvation, poverty, genocide. To say nothing of the internal strife of guilt, fear, heartbreak, and shame. And so finally, even this strategy, rolling up your sleeves and getting to work, ends up in the same place as the first one. Disillusionment. Exhaustion. Because though we may have acknowledged that God is on the throne with our lips, Every action we undertake, every action of our lives reveals that we are living as if everything depends on us. Here again, there is no hope, no joy, no life. And so we come to our third option. One that does not lead to disillusionment and exhaustion. One that is in fact good news because it does not depend on you. This good news hangs on the finished work of Jesus Christ for sinners. Before you roll up your sleeves, remember Jesus, who rolled up his sleeves for you. Remember, when you are confronted with a thing that should not be so, that you worship the God who created the world, told it exactly how it should be, and then when it fell into evil and sin, redeemed it. We don't throw up our hands. We don't roll up our sleeves, at least not in the way that people usually think. When we hear those six words, this should not be so, we speak another six words right back to them. Jesus Christ came to save sinners. Jesus, 
the Savior, who St. Paul said came to us sinners while we were enemies of God, takes all of the this ought not to be so onto his shoulders at the cross. He became this ought not to be so, and he became it so much that his holy father had to turn away from him. My God, my God, our Savior cried, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was for a moment forsaken so that we could for eternity be saved. And he did save. He finished that work. He rolled up his sleeves. That's what Jesus did. Remember how James opens his letter by reminding us, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Every good and perfect gift is from above. And this is the perfect gift that God's holy gaze found all of the this ought not to be so of the world in and on his own son sacrificed for us. And then it got even better. Emptied of our this ought not to be so, we are then filled with Jesus's well done, good and faithful servant, his own righteousness given to us. An enemy made a friend, an enemy adopted as a child. And now, now, as adopted children in Christ, we can start to deal with our unruly tongues. So, how do we tame our tongues? We throw ourselves back again and again on the finished work of Christ. His amazing grace poured out for us on the cross. Todd preached this so wonderfully last week. In God's economy, in the light of the gospel, the finished work of Jesus Christ, the commands of God become gifts. Remember, every good and perfect gift comes from above. So when we hear James's admonition to stop using our mouths to curse, to stop bringing brackish water out of a fresh spring, we can hear not only the perfect and righteous law and expectation of a holy God, we can also hear in and by faith the very things that Christ has promised to accomplish for us. The work he has done. We are born again into Christ, covered by his righteousness, and find in our reliance on him that our tongues, even our tongues, become tamed. Not all at once, and not perfectly on this side of heaven, but this is a promise of God to you, and God always keeps his promises. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, Jesus preached in Matthew 5. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. 
For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. The list of things required of you becomes... By the miracle of imputation, the actual giving of Christ's goodness to you, a sinner, the list of things required of you becomes the list of things given to you. Jesus said that nothing would pass from the law until all was accomplished. And then in that moment of moments on the cross, Jesus did accomplish it. He did fulfill the law. It is finished, was his triumphant shout. And it is finished for you, for me, forever. As you know better than most, your tongue can get you into big trouble. Be careful with it. But please know, please always know that Christ was sent for you while you were in big trouble. He is there in big trouble for you. He became in big trouble for you. He took your trouble and gave you his goodness. That is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Your life is a catalog of this ought not to be so. So join us as we use our tongues for their intended purpose to sing God's praises and to affirm our faith in his goodness. We're going to say the creed here in just a moment. Join us as we cast ourselves once again, week by week, day by day, hour by hour, on the unending and inexhaustible mercies of Christ. As we use our tongues to confess and receive forgiveness in his name. And then join us as we feast, as we taste literally on our tongues, his body and blood broken and shed for us. Remembering all that he accomplished, that he took your this ought not to be so life to the cross. And there gave his well done, good and faithful servant life to you. This incredible trade, your sin for his righteousness. This is the thing that truly ought not to be so. You are undeserving But by an amazing grace and the free gift of Christ sacrificed for you, it is so today and forever. Amen.